I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. McLaren Vale sits right in a cluster of important Australian wine regions. If you look at the whole of Australia, McLaren Vale is located in the south and just off-center to the east, on South Australia's southern coast. To the east, the Mount Lofty Ranges create a topographical barrier, separating McLaren Vale from the lower Murray zone. And to the west, Gulf St. Vincent helps to mediate the temperatures and contributes to the region's Mediterranean climate that features little risk of harvest tragedies, such as frost and rain. Head north and you'll drive through a memorable wine route that will take you through the Sauvignon Blancs of the Adelaide Hills, the Rieslings of Eden Valley, the ancient Shiraz vineyards in the Barossa Valley, and then more Rieslings in the Clare Valley. Head south and you'll reach the coast. Then it's just a boat ride away to Kangaroo Island. McLaren Vale is right in the center of an incredibly rich wine zone, where you'll find some of the world's oldest vineyards. Not only does the region boast some incredibly old vineyards, it also boasts the oldest bottle of Australian wine in existence, an 1867 bottle of Tintera Claret. But even older than this bottle are the soils. The soils here are some of the oldest in the world. You can date them back 500 to 750 million years ago. To put this into perspective, most of New Zealand rose up from the ocean about 20 million years ago. These old McLaren soils are also varied from place to place, because quite some time ago, a glacier deposited its scrapings from numerous other areas here. If you had to generalize, though, you'll find a lot of ancient sandstone. Though some older vineyards are being gobbled up by Adelaide's suburban sprawl, you'll still find people planting newer vineyards, and a few prominent plots today date back to the 1990s. But what distinguishes McLaren Vale from its neighboring wine regions? The wine heritage in McLaren Vale is distinctly different from its neighbors. Up north in the Barossa and Clare Valley, the heritage dates back to a Lutheran community escaping religious persecution in Silesia, a country that no longer exists. But here in McLaren Vale, the wine history dates back to English entrepreneurs who were originally focusing on cereal grains in the region. Grapes were first planted here in 1838, making McLaren Vale one of the oldest wine regions in Australia. Seven years after those first finds, the South Australian paper reported in 1847, there was no lack of good vines in McLaren. These early settlers from Britain recognized the Mediterranean climate and drew parallels between McLaren Vale and the Rhone Valley. They banked on similar grape varieties being successful here, and they were right. McLaren Vale Grenache, in particular, continues to capture the press's attention and amazes wine drinkers. You'll also find differences in elevation from the coast to the Mount Lofty Ranges, which creates many little microclimates perfect for different things. Thus, the wines you'll find from this region are varied, as are the types of producers. A few winemakers have a comparatively large production here, but many of the wineries are small boutique operations. Some, such as members of the Vale Crew, have banded together to create small batches from unique vineyards across the region. You'll also find the full gamut of winemaking styles, 
with the ripe Syrah fruit and new oak side of the spectrum, contrasted by producers working with high-acid red varieties like Nebbiolo and Tempranillo. Keep listening to learn more about one botanist winemaker who has made McLaren Vale his home. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand brad hickey of brass higgins wines and the mclaren vale hello sir how are you I'm doing really good. Love you. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. So this is kind of a return for you because you worked as a sommelier in New York. And then before that, you were working at Union Square Cafe like in 97 as a waiter. What was it like back then, late 90s? Very close family. I really wanted to belong to it. I really liked the people there. I thought it was a really a really exciting atmosphere. The place was always busy. There was always a great vibe, a great energy there. Really, uh, really worked hard. It was probably one of the hardest jobs I ever worked to get, to be honest with you. That whole restaurant was so kind of interesting in the sense that the servers had a lot of responsibility. You weren't sort of treated uh, micromanaged by anybody else. You were given freedom to comp things and to handle situations uh, without question. And some servers obviously took advantage of that. You know, everybody got a cookbook, you know, or everybody got free potato chips or um, which always helped build check averages and, and you know, get people to, to loosen up and tip better. Are you saying that right now you have a lot of old customers who have cookbooks? Like, <laughs> are you talking about you? You're like, anytime I need a Michael Romano recipe, I can call one of 300 people. That's it. You want to try the filet mignon of tuna? Let's go. No, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that. Uh, you know, there was a lot of people that were much more cheeky than I was. I was still fairly new to New York. and Didn't um, want to lose your job. And didn't stuff. want to lose my job. I was really happy to have it. And I was kind of from the Midwest, sort of. I was like a really just sort of friendly kind of Midwestern guy. Which was also good. I mean, I think they're really good about hiring people that are generally nice people. I think they pride themselves on that and then, you know, or have a sense of humor. You know, they're sort of uh, questionnaires that you fill out before and are kind of legendary, you know, tell us about a funny moment or something. And then it is like a casting call. It's uh, it was quite an intense sort of experience. But it got me jazzed about hospitality. It got me excited about making people happy. And that was kind of what led me into probably sticking with it as a career. And the wine program for me was the one sort of intellectual side to it that I really enjoyed. It was the side where I got to taste new things that I hadn't seen or hadn't, or hadn't learned about and, and then became like the kind of one of the people on the floor that the other servers could come up and talk to and say, hey, there's a wine question here. I really like that. You know, I like being sort of one of the knowledgeable people about it. And Karen King who was running the program, gave everybody a lot of freedom to take that role on. And she, at the end of the day, I think maybe a year and a half later, introduced me to Joseph Nace at Les Benas and helped me get an interview there at the St. Regis. So that was sort of the beginning of my of my career in wine in New York City. And he was kind of one of the OGs, like the original sommeliers of New York. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was a, a huge influence. And really, um, it was a really interesting situation at, at the St. Regis because it's the hotel as well. And it's obviously a very French-driven restaurant at that time. There was a sort of a transition between the Grey Coons era, uh, which ended with uh, all sorts of fiasco. And, uh, you know, they closed the restaurant, I think, after a, a harassment suit. The staff was angry. The union staff grouped together and then basically showed their power and closed it down. And I don't know what's happened to Grey Coons since, but that was a great format for him. And the stories about him were legendary. But when I went there, was the, they'd moved over to Christian Deluverier, who was a different style of chef completely. He was not a 
really regimented Swiss chef like Kuhn's. He was very old school French. Um, you know, you go into the walk-ins and there'd be you know, wicker baskets full of vegetables and things. So it was pretty cool for me. I was like, wow, this is, this is a different environment. I was kind of going in as a cellar rat. So, you know, I wasn't exactly like at that stage hadn't proved myself at all. I was going to be the guy to help replace the guy that opened boxes and, and, uh, you know, help room service and did all those sort of sort of menial tasks, but it was still, uh, but you were excited about it. I was excited about it, but it was such a different, it was so different. It's so much lonelier than union square, which is all about back rubs and good vibes and everything. And there's like hugs and like, Oh, this place is like my family. And then all of a sudden you're thrown down into the cellar of a big hotel, kind of a impersonal cold hotel. And you're like, Oh, this is kind of lonely, you know? And you're like you're talking to the Polini Monarche and the Chasson Monarche. You're like, I am Polini Monarche. I am Chasson Monarche. I will fight you to the death. Did you? Yeah. You had like battles downstairs. It, with was, the, it was almost yeah. like the shining at certain times. Yeah. I was definitely losing it, but I knew that something good could come from it. Um, and I think after about nine months of, of helping, build that program and joseph uh, at that time was given a green light to go for a grand award which was obviously one of the sort of cool moments when the wine started flooding in and the buying and auctions and i got a chance to learn a lot about about how he sourced wine and how he thought about it and then you know obviously i had to figure out how to classify it and how to organize it so all good basic things for running a wine program we eventually got the grand award which was really cool i think on the second try and then i kind of graduated up to the floor uh, which was another amazing experience being fitted for a tuxedo and, you know, cast into that dining room, which was very sort of Louis Fourteenth, you know, very formal, very elegant. Last chandeliers and, yeah, it was a totally different world. But I grew into it and I really enjoyed it. And that's where I kind of learned how to sell wine and, and learned a lot from those sort of seasoned waiters there, the veterans on the floor about, you know, how to, how to handle situations and how to, you know, deal with all sorts of scenarios. What are some of those that you remember? Well, my favorite probably was just, you know, opening a bottle of champagne tableside and losing the actual top of the cork and it exploding and a bottle of sprayed all over the place and showered people in champagne. And, and Hey, was, it's a party. I was aghast. Like, oh my God, I was ready to just crumple into a ball. And this Brazilian waiter, Marco, who was there, was like, hey, everybody, it's a party. Oh, really? That's what that's, <laughs> yeah. So then he puts champagne glasses down on everybody's table and pours them a free glass of champagne. And everybody's like, oh, yay. And I was like, wow, what a save. And then for like the next six months, I had to like open every champagne like in another room because I just lost my, you know, I lost my my mojo. But stuff like that, you know, or just, you know, if you ran into a problem, like if someone was really quizzing you about where the cheeses were from in France, they would say, just say it's from the center of France. It's okay. It's like, all from the center. It's all from the center. You're like, all right, well, I'll try that one, you know. Just learned ways of very quickly diffusing situations that could potentially, you know, make things uncomfortable for the guests sitting there, right? Um you know, there was so much access to really interesting wine. All the producers, the any producer who came to town would come through that cellar and want to taste with Joseph. And so you got to meet a lot of the the real sort of legendary names at the time that I really didn't know were legendary. But you learn, you know, all of a sudden here comes, you know, uh, Rumier or here's, you know, the Shavs. And it was really amazing looking back on it, what I had access to and how my sort of palate and everything kind of grew from that. Obviously, you know, it's a really rare sort of drinking a lot of really good wine. It was difficult to sort of drop down again to the $20 range because everything you're tasting was, you know, all the sort of finest wines of the world. But not the worst scenario, really, if you think about it. But, you know, you're walking up to tables and they'd be like saying, do we want to get the Land Rover or do we want to get the 61, you know, Chateau Margaux? And you're like, well, those are tough calls, but definitely try the wine, you know. And that was pretty common in the late 90s there into probably left there in 2000 and probably 2001 so over the millennium which was a, a massive you know big night of 82 bordeaux and everything that was sort of to me it was sort of the pinnacle of that big spender era because it was the 2000 vintage and it was the new years and yeah, yeah. it was you know everything was supposed to shut down it was supposed to be right. y2k is so going to be the end of the world all the computers are going to stop and it was interesting sourcing because we had, you know, again, it was going to be an expensive menu. And we did like 82 Pichon Lalande and we had just cases of these beautiful Bordeaux and wines coming in and champagnes. And yeah, and that was that was sort of the apex of of that career for me at Lespinas. And I think once you kind of worked in that sort of that rarefied air, you were able to kind of then look at the next job, you know, which would be hopefully pay better and you can kind of start moving because that was for me a real that was a real sort of stagery, you know, it was a real entry level position. And eventually in New York City, you're going to have to finally find a way to make some more money. So you have to kind of graduate out of that. And 
And eventually I did, and I, and I started working at Danielle for a little while too. So that was the next phase out of the hotel world, which I was kind of grateful for at the end of the day. Hotels were a little bit a little bit cold for me. But let me ask you this question. I mean, you're physically a, a large person. So did you have to develop a service persona that kind of was more chill? I've grown larger in the years since then. I used to be quite svelte. I don't know. I think, yeah, there was a very, there's probably a pretty calming quality to my table manner. It was never very aggressive. And it was always, yeah, it was, you know, the soft sell more than anything, really trying to read people very quickly. Because I could see someone being a little, you know, because you're standing over them. You're a big guy. Like, it's almost like you have to go the nice route. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, people are going to get scared. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see what someone else sees when they see me. I don't see that person. I, you know, I just see a normal person coming to the table. I, table manners, almost everything is as important in, in sommelier work as knowing the wines. I mean, you have to really have a presence because most of the time you are at the table more than the captains are. You probably are that sort of the guide for the table, especially if you're doing tasting menus, and which we were doing more of at that time. You know, that was sort of the beginning for me of wine pairings were starting to become more de rigueur. Yeah, but I think I had that sort of Midwestern niceness kind of thing, and people were like, oh, that's good. He's not really aggressive, and he's not an angry big guy. He's more of a gentle giant, and that, that probably was probably helps. So you start to see wine service change a little bit in New York, though. You saw people kind of trying to up the game with pairings and stuff like that. Yeah, in fact, we didn't have the same sort of access to social media that you have now, but and I remember when I moved from Danielle, if you fast forward, I mean, when we started Boulay's tasting menus, which were very famous— that was the first time that I actually had started seeing wine pairings, and that was just our idea to try them. Like, David had never done that, and and as far as I knew, I mean, probably the captains during the day would be, like, able to throw bottles left and right, but we were trying to do orchestrated pairings and thinking long and hard about sakis and new products and things that were new to New York City. So, you know, I'm not sure now. I haven't been in New York long enough this trip to see them that much, but I'm imagining that most restaurants would offer them because they obviously were a great way also to make money for the restaurant too, right? So if you had a table of 10 doing 10 wine pairings, that was going to be a fairly good night for the wine program. And you didn't necessarily were necessarily serving them $10,000 worth of wine or something, right? Because you did end up becoming a wine director for David Boulay at Boulay. Yes. After Danielle and all that, that was a shorter period for me, but there was a bit of a gap between Danielle and Boulay. I call it the dark age, the dark period. Brad, <laughs> but I came out like a phoenix. No, and and worked with Boulay after nine eleven when they reopened down at that Boulay Bakery space, which had become the new Boulay. What was that time like? It was a pretty difficult time. And Tribeca, I think, it was was really hurting. A lot of the businesses around there were were starting to close down, and there just wasn't the the same traffic. You know, people were sort of steering clear of that area. It was interesting. I mean, David Boulay's reputation, I think, really helped bring people back because he's such a well known chef and is such a big draw. That people still, and his fan base was so loyal that they were still coming down, even though the neighborhoods themselves was kind of like in a bit of a slump. But yeah, looking back on it, it, it was a pretty exciting time just to see the kind of the people getting back into the spirit of enjoying themselves, you know. And I think there wasn't, at that time, I mean, people were really starting to enjoy wine again. Like there was a reverse sort of feeling of like, well, let's start spending more on wine. People were like, life is short, you know, let's have a nice bottle and there was a lot more of that conversation at the table of, oh, you know, normally we wouldn't, but, you know, after what just happened. So people were eating and drinking again, I think. And that was, um, that was good for, obviously, for the restaurant to see that. It was nice to see the way that people were started coping with, with 9-11. That was, yeah, that was an, an amazing time to be down that close to that area. What so, was he like as a boss and chef? He was um, super smart. I mean, he was, he is a super smart guy. I think you know, you certainly qualify him as a genius in a lot of ways and initially a bit distant. And I think once I was sort of in the wine program and we got to know each other, once I sort of passed that sort of three month sort of probationary period, he started trusting me a lot. And then he, he started talking a lot about wine and, uh, I think he liked what we were doing with the wine program, the wine pairings end of thing. And he got a lot of feedback from his customers that they were happy with the wine service and that they've seen it kind of you know, go up a notch as far as seriousness, because I think the food had always sort of stole the show with Boulay's cooking. And he was he was cool with that. He liked that. Really, it could be really unpredictable at times, too, which most, you know, you see that in a lot of kitchens, right? A lot of chefs can be sort of, wow, what happened there? But um, yeah, in general, just a really super uh, creative guy that really was not happy with sitting still, you know, an amazing amount of energy and just 
constantly wanted to continue to push and push. Um, and with a tremendous sort of range of menus and knowledge and, you know, his sort of arsenal of recipes and on the spot, you know, what we can do with these flavors was seemed pretty boundless, you know, or endless. So, yeah, very exciting place to work as a wine guy because you were constantly thrown new situations. And, and again, in a very lavish dining room too, where everybody was comfortable and it was yeah, for me, it was a really exciting way to re-enter the sort of fine dining world because he wasn't as he wasn't as strict as maybe some of the, the sort of classic French chefs. He was a little bit more freewheeling. You know, he's on his Harley and he was, you know, it always had you know, beautiful women that were around and an entourage. And it was yeah, it was kind of it was it was definitely kind of a fun, fun time to work there. And there was a lot of opportunity to travel, see the world. You know, you got a chance to to go to places and with really cool producers. I think I remember one of my favorite trips was probably going with Martin Gold, Martin Scott Wines and Deirdre Shear and Dave Kanicki. And I was on their buying trip. They invited me as the only sort of wine guy to go with them on their yearly Burgundy buying trip. And it was, they visited Dujac and Domaine Romani-Conti and Domaine Lefebvre. And, you know, got to meet all of these amazing producers and sit with them at the table and have lunch or dinner and just taste all the barrels with them at the same time. And that kind of access is something you can only get with a chef like Boulet, you know, and that was, those are some of the probably most amazing fringe benefits too. If you could fight for the time to get off the floor, you know, which is always an issue, like how am I going to get away for a week? But those were some great moments. What was it like structuring a program for that kind of restaurant? Started really simple. I had made mistakes at uh, other restaurants that I'd learned from, and I was very cautious about buying. I knew that I, my role was much more about being a, an investor for the business you know, you buy and sell during the day, and then at night you jump into your suit and do you know the dog and pony show, as uh, someone once said. But yeah, it started small and then slowly built the list around personal experiences, wines that meant something to me. Uh, and then by the end of four years, I had this sort of interesting sort of travel journal of people I'd met. And most every wine on there had a story or I'd had some sort of contact with the people or, or maybe had visited the vineyards. And it grew into that real sort of travelogue you know, which I was so proud of because, you know, when you stop and look at the list at the end of the night after a busy night and, you know, just seeing where you were with your list, it, it sort of read like a diary. It wasn't even that French driven too. I think we had a fair amount of French wines, but I was also quite interested in, in the wines of the rest of the world. So it became a real sort of a general wine list, you know, had a lot of interesting things that I was discovering that weren't necessarily in the sort of Franco line. Um, which I think was different too. And I'm sure the program changed when the next sommelier came in after me. But that was sort of my interest too, was like, well, let's take these people on a journey. Boulay's cooking was not necessarily straight French. It was, you know, he was doing Thai flavored dishes and lots of experimenting with Tahitian vanilla and all sorts of exotic flavors. So in that sense, I got a chance to sort of buy wide and far and, and sort of including sakis and, and different things like that. And you ended up going to Australia at one point. I did, yeah. So Australia became, and that's where I live now. I went there as a buyer in 2004, and that was a big trip. And that was a trip I really had to fight to get onto. It was a three-week junket with the Grateful Palette at that time, which was Dan Phillips's um, importing company. And uh, went down there for about three weeks and really liked it, really had a great time and loved the space and the fresh air and, and just thought it was really primitive, but beautiful, like only a primitive, like ancient feeling, you know, it just felt like the land of the lost. And uh really different to obviously the urban side of New York. And uh, I wanted to go back in my head. I thought it'd be really a beautiful place to live. And then I eventually did go back in 2007. I left Boulay and uh, after four and a half years of service and then uh, and went down to work vintage at the sort of Chris Ringland uh, had asked if I wanted to work vintage and I gotten to know Chris, very well-known Australian winemaker. And uh, I think he was shocked when I said yes, but I was ready to kind of get out of New York for a while and just sort of get some space. Because New York was a congested city with a lot of people. and Yeah, it is. And restaurants make it even more congested, you know, if you're in a tight cellar and you're in a tight kitchen and everything, you just, you do start to have those open field fantasies where you're like, God, it'd be nice to just open my arms up and not hit somebody in the head. And that was, uh, honestly, God, those are real fantasies I had. And I thought that's maybe we should look at some sort of change. And not being a native New Yorker too, I was I was okay with moving out back into some fresh air. And I'd felt that at that stage, after 10 years, I'd kind of gotten the New York thing out of my system. Like I was ready to go. And when I left, it wasn't like I felt like I had left anything undone here. It was, as far as what I wanted to do in the wine scene here, I felt I'd kind of accomplished it. There was 
one or two directions I could have gone and neither of them seemed really that appealing. And I really wanted to just sort of cut loose and, and maybe see what it'd be like to make wine or certainly be around making wine. So you got out there and you helped with harvest and how did that go? It went really well. They liked me, which I liked a lot. That was good. So they put me kind of in, at that time they were bringing in fruit from all over South Australia for this project that Chris was working on. And so I got to drive a little rental car around uh, all the different districts and get to know the growers and and just to hang out a little bit it was low pressure. I'd pick up grape samples and bring them back to the winery and press them and kind of help winemakers get, you know, some numbers that they were looking at as grapes were ripening. It was sort of the, the sort of guy Friday and did anything they asked me to do. And, uh, and I liked it a lot. And then I, after three months, I decided I had to leave because my visa was sort of a three-month visa. And then I went to Vietnam for a month, which I wanted to see while I was down there. Because at this stage, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew I wanted to at least go to Southeast Asia. And then got sort of inspired by the farmers up there as I traveled further north up into close to China and started seeing and, and hanging out more with the farmers and, and realizing just how kind of that sort of backbreaking but really honest work was really appealing to me. And didn't want to go back to New York, so I was like, well, I'm going to go back to Australia and see if I can prune and spend the year out in the vines and at least take some more time, you know, and see what I can, see what I can make happen down here. That feels like a big life change. It slowly was a big life change. Yeah, it was really lonely and it was really different from being in the high life here and the profile and being you know sought after and people calling you constantly to all of a sudden the phone stop. And I remember that so it was like it was sort of like in hiding for a while down there and it seemed, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, maybe I'm trying to think of a, a movie metaphor, you know, maybe the Karate Kid or something where he goes off after the beating and, you know, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it's definitely a little quiet period and it gave me a lot of time to reflect and think and which is what I needed. You know, I needed to get away from the noise of New York. And, and eventually during that period when I wasn't looking for it, I met a woman named Nicole Thorpe, who's my partner now. And we were just, um, you know, in different parts of our lives and, and slowly got into dating. And it was sort of a nice sort of evolution into, into romance. It wasn't that sort of, you know, some of the crazier romantic things that, you know, in New York City, like, oh my God, it was just sort of a nice mature way of getting to know somebody. And, and then eventually getting more involved in her life and then also, you know, in the wine side of things too. And she had planted a vineyard before I arrived, which was very nice of her, you know, to know that I was coming. And, uh, and that also gave me something to get busy in right away too, was in viticulture and learning about the vineyard and learning about winemaking, you know, eventually. And uh, she invited me to stay and then let go of my apartment in New York City, which was a massive move, severing that sort of escape pod back to the States and really focusing on my life now being down in Australia. And that's sort of where I am now too. And it just took time to sort of get to know more about winemaking and get to know more about what we needed to do there as a business and as a farm, sort of get things in the direction that both Nicole and I wanted to see things go. And, and that eventually led to, you know, doing other fun things in the vineyard, like removing parts of the vineyard, removing Shiraz and, and bringing in uh, Nero Davila and new varieties and things that, uh, that I thought would be, not only probably more appropriate for the climate there, but also just a lot of fun to play with, you know, something new and the new flavors and, and do a little bit of uh, sort of research and see if we could find some things like that, that, that could work in that district. And so, yeah, it was kind of let loose. Well, what about that year of pruning? I mean, going back to that for a second, what was that like? It was very, very slow and very quiet and very, there's a lot of banter between the pruners, the gang that I was pruning with. And, and still to this day, they, they actually prune our vineyard, which is kind of funny if you think about it, really. So I was out there, didn't know anything. They taught me how to prune. And then we would just shoot the shit all day, basically. Like, you know, we talk about better, faster pruners, better seconders that you could find. You know, hydraulics were just going on the market. So it was a, that was a hot topic. Or, you know, which mechanics were, were fair and which ones ripped you off. And, you know, all sorts of ridiculousness. We spent seven or eight hours out with, you know, guys in the vineyards all day. And, um, but it was, you know, you'd finish at three o'clock, maybe it'd start to be raining on you all day. You'd be cold. You'd just go into the bar and everybody would crack open a stout and sit by the fire and warm up. And, and even that had a real sort of nice communal feeling to it down there. And, and in essence, that's what probably welcomed me to McLaren Vale was that group of pruners. They're the ones who sort of gave me the nickname Brash. I think after a few beers, Brad and Crash, I crashed a couple of cars, maybe Brad and Crash became Brash. That's and then Higgins was the last name I used to just sort of be able to um, have an alias so I could fill out my sort of paperwork to work there a little bit longer, like a backpacker might do, you know, like, oh, I'll just stay for three months and then I would leave and go back to Australia. So Brash Higgins was this funny name that I thought was, uh, 
you know, kind of cool. Maybe one day I'd have, you know, a, a line of denim or something that we could have. So, but that was this sort of Australian alias. But those, they, the pruners were the first to really welcome me, you know. And there was initially, that was like traveling during the Bush era as an American too. There was not a lot of favorable foreign policy issues going on. And so, you know, that was sort of the first sort of sign of welcome to the family type of thing. It was important. At what point did you decide that the winemaking was going to be your thing? Well, you know, it happened probably with the Nero Davila. Once we had put in this new variety, I was obsessed with it and really, really wanted to see it through. And I thought about ways of vinifying it and different techniques and got involved with locating um, amphoras and building, having those built for us locally and, and going to Sicily and doing some research down there and seeing the way that Nero worked. And, and at that stage, I think I really was, I was hooked on it and really wanted to see that in particular and then from there, though, that was 2011, we started also looking at a Grenache Mataro blend, which I still do today. And, uh, and then those kind of smaller projects that were a little bit more esoteric and a little bit more different than what was normally coming off of the vineyard started, I started kind of chasing those down. But it wasn't like I went there with the intention of being a winemaker, really. I was sort of just went there and kind of just was approaching things as they came my way. You know, we had the Shiraz and Cabernet off of our vineyard initially was being made by another winemaker named Tim Geddes, who's still a friend today, but it was a bigger scale and it was going under Nicole's uh, surname label. So it was kind of going out into, you know, I had nothing to do with it really, except help sell it and help kind of see it get through. It wasn't until we started doing a little bit more kind of funkier things that we decided we needed to probably think about another, another name for those wines. And, and then Brashigan sort of surfaced. So how much Nero Davila was in Australia when you brought some in? There wasn't a lot. I think the Chalmers family, which is to this day sort of responsible for a lot of those uh, early Italian varietals that came into Australia, had a bit. And then we were trying to buy cuttings from them. And then they sold to another nursery in 2008. And that sort of tied things up. And there was, up until that time, there was maybe one or two vineyards that I know of that weren't exactly thriving, though. There were some virus issues. And I'm not even sure where the cuttings came from. But there wouldn't be a lot, let's put it that way. And um, I think those cuttings that we got access to in 2009 must have been some of the early cuttings. And I think at that time they cleared quarantine and we saw very quickly once we saw some compatibility with our Shiraz rootstock that we grafted it to, that it was going to do well. And it just took off. So at that stage, I think people were watching and seeing how it was going to do. And, and it did really well. It thrived. Yeah. And to this day, I think now there's quite a bit more. It's probably one of the most well-planted uh, new varieties in McLaren Vale. I think there's at least 25 growers that have it. It certainly hasn't replaced Shiraz, but just as many sort of uh, different examples in the market from different winemakers. And you see a bit more in Victoria and Heathcote and, and in the Riverland as well. There's uh, quite a few plantings up there because it loves the sun and it doesn't need a lot of water. So it does a lot of nice things for us uh, on the eco-environmental boxes, you know, it just and it has great natural acid, which we also need, I think, for fine wines. So, yeah, there wasn't a lot of people working with it at all. But now, I mean, that's a quick evolution that now 25 people in the region would be. Yeah, and that's probably being a little bit, you know, it's probably being very conservative. I'm really proud of it. I'm thinking we've really, you know, now if you think about it and look at it, and, and you never know whether we had anything to do with that, but I think we probably did. And, and I think certainly McLaren Vale, seeing how close it is to the Gulf and how similar to Sicily it is, and certainly to southern Italy in general, there's been a, a wealth of new plantings of other things, too. The, it sort of opened the floodgates for, well, what else is out there? You know, he's done Nero Davila. Why don't we try to do Fiano? Or we can maybe, or someone else could try, you know, well, we'll do Negro Amaro. Or, and so there became a whole lot of, a lot of grape varieties that I think people started to become more, um, more interested in playing with. And that's based on drought resistance? Initially, yeah, I think it is. It certainly is based on heat tolerance and drought resistance and... Uh, I don't know as much about some of those other varieties and their water needs. I know with Nero Davila, there's, we won't even start watering it until maybe January. And then it only gets a few drinks really until we harvest it. So whereas Shiraz and Cabernet might need starting to get water early in October before the heat waves come. So they're not caught with their, with their pants down. But in general, yeah, those sort of Southern Italian Greek varietals tend to be very sturdy, you know, and very, um, very, very tolerant and very hardy varieties. And it's an uh, area that's maybe experiencing some climate change, or? Seems to be. Yeah, from the, the people that have been there longer than me, the vintages are getting earlier and earlier. I mean, I think people are shocked now that Cabernet Sauvignon never came off before March, you know, and now we're, we're very clearly taking ours off well before then. 
Um, we're picking some of the white varieties like Chenin Blanc in January. And so I think, you know, there's clearly climate change uh, amidst, you know, unless there's like a 20-year window that we're just in the middle of and it's going to revert, who knows. But yeah, it's real. It's happening. And so people are kind of planning for the future by planning something that's... They'd have to be. Yeah. I mean, and they also are probably looking at ways of making different things as well, because there's a lot of people, a lot of consumers want to try new wines too. So I think there's been a big demand for these sort of different wines, different varietals, you know, we call them the, the appropriate varietals, you know, that things that probably suit this climate better than Cabernet Sauvignon or maybe, you know, Shiraz certainly can handle it, but wines that maybe can be a little bit more in the medium bodied spectrum too. And I think a lot of the winemakers that are handling the new varietals from those regions, like from Spain and so forth, are making them with a light hand. And I think that's also bodes really well for what I think Australia is starting to produce. I mean, we need to get away from the reputation as being, you know, a big hitting red country and something that can show refinement and elegance. And, uh, and that's something that tends to be those new varietals are ones I think people are the most delicate with. So around you, you see people actively trying to differentiate themselves from the big Shiraz stereotype. Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, loud and clear. And I think that there's a new generation of drinkers, too, that are coming up. They want to drink fresher styles, you know, in the hot weather, that suit the climate, that suit the food that we're eating there. It's not all about big, you know, heavy reds anymore. It's, it's about being able to do those, but also being able to show a range. So fresh whites blends of Tariga, Tempranillo, Grenache, you know, things that are lighter and just more drinkable, less alcohol. And those are becoming much more in demand. Is that demand in the domestic market or in the export market or in both? It's in the domestic market now. I think the export market still probably looks to Australia for some of the classics. I mean, it's going to be a tough sell at times probably for our Nero Davola to compete with the wines of Sicily. And, and that's not the point. Really, the point for me is let's try to grow things that we want to drink in our home country. And It'll be interesting to see the way that those wines export. I think the majority of the world still probably wants Shiraz from Australia because it's got a reputation and that's probably what it's known for. But in those little pockets, in little cool little bars and wine bars around you know, London or New York or San Francisco or wherever, um, I think you're seeing some more progressive styles. You know, Some of the wines coming out of Clarence Vale or the Adelaide Hills that are being treated much more in a, in a natural way, You know, not with heavy doses of sulfur or wines that are much fresher and younger. I think those are being now shown in the same market as like you'd see a lot of the wines of in Paris and so forth. Some of those wine bars, you know, that champion that style. There's quite a few of those now coming out of Australia. And that's also really exciting to see that sort of backlash to industrial style winemaking, you know, making it much more of a, of a grocery type of thing where it's just, it's a consumable, you know, it's not maybe meant to lay down for decades now. It's like, let's open it. And apparently the facts are that, you know, most people open a bottle of wine they buy in from the wine store and drink it in like 15 minutes, I think. is <laughs> So, you know, young, fresh drinking wines, it's uh, for a hot climate, it makes perfect sense. A lot of times when you hear about producers in California who are on a similar track, they're often themselves drinking a fair amount of European wines. I mean, do you see people drinking European wines in Australia? I do. Yeah, there's been a massive surge in, in European imports in the last seven or eight years, I think. It's, it's really amazing to really look at where Australia was as far as allowing those wines into the marketplace. They were expensive, I think, because of taxation and so forth. But, but even now, um, there's a big demand for a lot of consumers that want to drink different things. And they want to see the comparisons of different Syrahs or whatever, or, for example, Long Island wines that are now you know, invading the shores of Australia. It's kind of cool to see it. You know? And the pricing is, people don't really know the pricing structures that well, but they're really interested just to try something different and see what's out there. And there's also a whole new wave of Australian sommeliers that are traveling and they're getting out there and doing a lot of work for the master sommelier work. And they're, they're learning as well. And they're also introducing people in Australia to all these cool wines that they get to drink when they go over to Europe and come back. And, and that's what's happening too, is the Psalms are opening the channels for all these other wines. And and it's the same in New York, I'd imagine, too, or anywhere where you get the, you know, the sort of tastemakers are starting to decide and, and people are either liking it or not. And there's, there's still a very strong division in Australia between the sort of the new kids, which are seen as kind of crazy, and some of those natural wines, which are seen as faulty and, and weird. And Do you and, get looped into that group sometimes? Sometimes we do, yeah, because of some of the wines, the wines we do in Amphora and some of the styles of wines we make are certainly counterpoint to other things, you know, and... But we also kind of dance around it as well, where I'm not really waving that flag. 
too heavily. I really enjoy classic styles like Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon, which we grow and make those styles too, as well as, you know, some bigger reserve style reds that, that certainly fit into that more iconic classic line of Australian drinking. So I go both on both sides of it. I like to see like my Cabernet Sauvignon, I probably would benchmark it with Napa or something like that. I want that sort of ripeness on it. I don't want to see a green leafy style of Cabernet. For me, I want to drink something that's going to be more in that sort of black and blue fruit and Shiraz. I might want to start trying to make things that are a little bit more gamey and a little bit more meaty, but still full bodied. You know, I'm not interested in showing a lighter style exactly at this point in my life. I'd rather use Nier Davila, Grenache, Cabernet Franc as lighter styles because I like those styles from from France that I've drunk, you know, where there are the sort of Loire Valley Chinons and things, which can be a little bit more higher acid. So, so we do enough, I think, in that one circle to kind of tick some boxes for some of the people that want to drink things outside, you know, and then also things that fit really well in another more conservative market. So I'm kind of on the fence. I go both ways. I really don't want to be dogmatic about anything I do. I think that's at this stage in my life, I know you need to be flexible. And I also know that I have a wide range of tastes too. I like all things. I like great old Bordeaux. And I also like, you know, drinking Grobner and I like lots of crazy stuff. So it's, you know, it's about keeping yourself excited and entertained. When you said to move away from industrial winemaking, I mean, sometimes that also implies a move away from industrial farming. But, you right. know, this is a country with a fairly high minimum wage, Australia. So how do you balance all that out so that you can farm and then charge a price that people will buy the wine? Yeah, that's a good question. There's um, It's a slow process, I think, moving into organic and farming of that nature. So it is more expensive. And I don't think people are convinced that it's, at this stage, the majority are convinced that it's worth fetching a higher price for fruit that's farmed that way. Certainly, I know in McLaren Vale that that if my organic Shiraz is not worth any more than Farmer B's commercial, conventionally farmed Shiraz. So there's not the uh, motivation for the growers at that stage to really take that leap because it's obviously opening you up to some potential disasters in your vineyard that not everybody wants to live with. So, so you are taking more risks by farming that way, and you can't really charge more for your wines necessarily. But it's slowly, I think, changing, and you're seeing much more of a, I think, more of a awareness to really good sort of best practice farming and McLaren Vale has been a real sort of leader in in implementing some of those programs that you've already seen, like with the Lodi rules or in various parts of the U S and Europe where they've are growing together for at least sustainability practices and, and educating growers about, you know, what, how do you farm and what do you do this? And, you know, this is, you know, take this one. It's probably the best way to do it. And, and that's something that we're also proud of. I mean, we've got neighbors of ours that have sort of pushed that forward. Dr. Irina Brown, who's done a lot of work on that. And they're sharing that with the rest of Australia saying, here's how we're going to do it. Here's if you guys want to join in, here's a program that can at least start educating people and, and gathering data on your district. And then you can make decisions from there. And it was from that program that Brash Higgins decided that, well, we're pretty close to organic farming now. Why don't we just clarify it and we can just take that leap and we'll go for certification just to sort of, you know, eliminate any confusion, right? This is how we farm. And that that program of sustainability and learning about all the inputs in the vineyard was huge for us. And I think McLaren Vale is still probably one of the greenest wine regions in Australia, but I'm seeing more and more of that happening. And it's the same with basic things like recycling. You know, where you live in Portland, Oregon, if you don't put the cereal boxes wrapped together, you're going to get shouted at by your neighbors. Or, you know, everything had to be immaculately organized. And it's still kind of starting in Australia too, where you know, getting involved with recycling and certain, you know, those sort of things are becoming real issues. What should I understand about McLaren Vale, having never visited? It's just south of Adelaide. So you're just about 30 minutes drive from, you know, major capital city. So you're, you're not completely remote. It's set on the Gulf of St. Vincent, which is beautiful. It's a very pristine body of water that uh, acts as a giant sort of swimming pool, cooling off those hot days. So the way it's placed on the map is really well suited for grape growing. There's a, a wealth of different geologies there. There's probably now at least 19 to 20 different sort of sub-regions. If you wanted to start that with that many, you could easily do that from very hot growing regions on the coast to much cooler growing regions closer to the Adelaide Hills. So you get a diversity of soil types from deep sands, which we would make a few of our wines from some of this Blue Springs area, which is very old sand. Um, and you're seeing, you know, the Adelaide Hills are right behind us, which is 500 million years old. It's been the size of the Himalayas twice, you know, so you get this sort of real scope of the time and how old these soils are. 
which I think also is something we're learning about more and more. I mean, McLaren Vale has a geology map, which is one of a kind, as far as I know, which is really detailed about what's beneath the soil, what's beneath the dandruff, right? So what's the rock? And that's really opened up our eyes about our best sites and starting to talk about that. And I think for us, that's the beginning of the evolution of something in a wine region you have to discuss, right? What are your best sites? What are they? And, and how can we start to talk about that? Now there's a map that at least shows everybody what the soils and beneath the soils is like. So it's a progressive area. It's full of a lot of people that aren't even, you know, that are either new to wine or, or new growers. It's not as um, fifth generation, sixth generation as perhaps the Barossa Valley, which is very traditional and very generational. McLaren Vale has a lot of fresh ideas, a lot of people that are transplants from around the world, like myself and other folks that aren't necessarily from there. So it has a lot of fresh ideas and a really strong restaurant culture as well, which is also great for a wine region to have with plenty of places we can take guests and, you know, or farmer's market, we can buy beautiful local produce. So it's really just a real unspoiled part of the world that's, uh, it does remind me a lot of, like, the coastline reminds me a lot of, like, of Greece. You know, it has that sort of real burnished, the beautiful turquoise waters, and the beaches are, for the most part, you know, plenty of space to move around. And it's just, yeah, it's a really fresh, beautiful place to live and grow grapes and, and yeah, live. So I imagine a lot of the people who are your neighbors and making wine probably went to winemaking school, but you didn't. You did wine drinking school in New York. Do you feel like you have a different outlook because of that? When you talk to people, does it seem like you're on a little bit of a different page? I think so. Yeah, it's definitely a different, it's a different education. It's a different approach. It's a different viewpoint. For me, it's, um, I taste a lot with the winemakers near us and we have tasting groups and it's really good to, to be around them and go through and we'll do like Barolo nights or whatever. Or the theme is Barbaresco and it's all blind and it's, it's always really interesting. I'm always looking at the wines and, and quite often I can actually identify something out of that lineup that I've had before. And I have a different sort of thought process about that, a different memory for memorizing wine and tastes and flavors and probably a real sort of wider acceptance for wine faults and things like that, like Brett and other things that you'd see in European wines that maybe in an Australian institutional environment would be very quickly discarded. You know, people develop a real hatred for it. Like the word itself becomes like a real sort of contention. So that's different. And also the fact that I never was told what I couldn't do as a winemaker. And I think that's allowed me to take some chances and maybe some didn't work, but some have worked and been really interesting results where, you know, I would ask for advice on this and uh, like maybe what's, what would happen if we put Riesling and Semillon and fermented them together, you know, and you'd hear certain trained winemakers say, well, that's going to be a disaster. Or someone else, you'd say, what if we leave this near Davila on its skins and amphora for five months? And they'd be, well, it turned to vinegar. And we've seen by trying it that the wines don't turn to vinegar, but they taste really good and they're really different. So I think that's probably part of being a wine drinker as well as having that, the breadth of experience, seeing a lot of other wines around the world that have probably taken that risk before me, seeing that they've succeeded to give me the confidence to try it. But also, yeah, wanting to sort of, to make things that, uh, that are exciting. And I think it's a situation I'm very grateful for to have my own vineyard that I can work from and my own winery that I can make the wines in. And that's a, that's an amazing thing. A lot of other winemakers really have to have very conscious of a bigger brand name or something like that, where they have to produce something every year that's going to be, you know, marketable and saleable where at the end of the day, if I make a wine one year, that's made in a way that I was a bit sort of unsure about and I didn't really like it. Well, you know, I don't really have to release it. So it's a different thing where, yeah, somebody else might have to be able to produce 20,000 or 10,000 cases of Shiraz and has to be really, has to deliver, you know, where I can be a little bit more cavalier about it. So on the one end, I can afford to be a little bit more brash, brash, <laughs> yeah, a little bit more out there. And that's fun. And that, that's a position that I'm really, really grateful for every day. In 2011, you went to Sicily and checked it out, some of the wine areas. So what was that like? It was hot. Um, it's August. It was some of the hottest years I'd had in a long time. I don't know if the historical record is there, but it was, it was very apparent very quickly that it felt like McLaren Vale. It was arid and, you know, there were olive trees and almonds and tomatoes everywhere. And it got the feeling that this felt like a very simpatico place for a near Davila. We spent a lot of time at Coast Winery, which I got to know a couple of people there very well and got to learn about their pithos and taste some of their wines and see the way that they operate. And then also did get a chance to travel up to Mount Etna and visit some of the characters up along the, the Etna range there. And that also was really an eye-opening experience just to see new varieties and, and taste wines in those very specific sort of terroirs. And also to learn about ways that they had used amphoras and things like that. And some of the wines we saw some real interesting sort of 
horsey characteristics. Some some things there was a lot of bottle variation, which I was sort of fascinated by. Some wines like side by side, same vintage, two different bottles can be vastly different. But I just love the banter. I love talking to people like that, to guys like you know Frank Corneliusen and and at Pithos, the guys at Coast. There was just a real interest in what do these vessels do to change the flavor of wine? How does it help or what's the detriment? So what do you think about that? How does it help or what's the detriment? Without knowing the hard, any real scientific facts about it, what I've found is there's a, a purity and a softness that we get from using terracotta. There's a warmth that might not be in steel or wood. And there's certainly an energy and a tension that you can get in certain things, like a Merlot that we make. And age in those vessels has a lot more brightness than a Merlot that I've aged from the exact same process in a wooden barrel, which can sometimes mute the flavor. Or, you know, you taste a lot of oaky Merlots. They get a little bit sort of a tiring. Those seem to be the main things. The other big factor is since they are so open, with the tops being open the way they are, that skin contact and allowing that longer skin contact, that's been also a real determining factor with the wines, outside of even the vessel themselves, but seeing what happens with white or red wines that are with the skins for five months. You know, that's a real interesting sort of development for me. Aromatically, what happens, the wines become like Campari or Amaro. They go into sort of another realm where it's no longer just about the fruits, about herbal, spice, and, you know, all that kind of real interesting sort of exoticism that you can get from from using those vessels. And I think that's, you know, with the barrel with a little bung in it or with the steel, you don't get that same feeling of let's get romantic with this. We're going to plunge our hands in it. And in the M4s, you get into that kind of mood where you're like, hey, let's light a candle and we're going to press these grapes every day. I'm going to punch them down just with my hands and I'm going to Each time I go in, I'm going to squeeze a few grapes, maybe pop a few grapes, kind of like get in there. And at the end of the day, you know, I've touched every one of the berries that goes into my wine. And and there's an intimacy right there that you couldn't do on a larger scale because there's only one one or two people that can get in there and do that. And plus, M4s are fragile and not as easy to move as big, you know, fermenters. But that's what also makes it special, right? It's a really small scale and it's all very hands-on and it's very intimate. So the M4s... um, allow us to do that, which is also really important. Being in Australia, in McLaren Vale, when you want an amphora, I mean, who do you call for that? You call Bennett McGill Pottery, and they were one of the potters. There's probably only two in town that had kilns big enough to do what we wanted and then also had the chops to actually you know, execute it. Uh, it's like fifth-generation pottery studio, big place. Everything's covered in clay. And even the potter himself had never made anything as big as I wanted. And they're only around 200 liters, but... It was still a departure. And so he started making four or five for me. And then we'd line them with beeswax when they came out of the kiln just to give a nice little barrier and sort of help keep things a little bit hygienic. And and then the next year we made five more and the next year five more. And so now we've got a small army. And and he's also has a whole new revenue stream, I think, from it. There's a lot of different winemakers that have liked our wines and want to try it themselves. Or, you know, I've, I've certainly um, have opened up some doors for his business to get abroad into Tasmania or New Zealand or, uh, you know, all parts of Australia. So, so he's the guy. I don't think he ever thought it would happen. It was kind of fun. The first couple that we designed and put into action. Cause I, you know, at that time I didn't think it was going to really, who knew what was going to happen, but it was kind of funny. And I, I'd asked him to make sure he'd always put a BH on the pots, you know, at least, at least mine. So in case, you know, someone stole one, I could say that's mine, man. But he still does this today, and I think to the chagrin of other winemakers, they're like, I don't want BH on my pot, man. <laughs> my initials are, you know, FR. Um, that's still kind of funny. But he still raises prices with me every year, too, which I don't really like, but that's okay. <laughs> and where do you think the clay comes from? I mean, Yeah, I, I've asked him. He gets the clay from our, next to our vineyard. There's a, a big quarry uh, where he pulls a lot of the clay from, and then some of it comes from Clara Valley as well. So he has a bit of a mixture that he uses for all of his terracotta. That's interesting, though, that it would be the same clay as the place. I mean, at least partially. Yeah, it is. I mean, part of us thought about trying to maybe, you know, do something exclusively from our vineyard. But at the end of the day, it was already like pulling teeth to get what I needed from him initially. And I wasn't about to change his medium. Basically, he knows what he uses and he's done it well for many years. But to get the fruit back into clay and, and, and have it nearby is kind of a cool, you know, result. So what's the difference between fermenting in clay and then aging in clay? Because I feel like you do both, but for different wines. Yeah, we do. We didn't want to do the Nirodavala and the Zabibo that we make are really interesting with longer skin contact because of that element of herbal and that element of, of difference that it provides. It sort of counteracts the fruitiness of the wines. We do a Merlot as well where we'll just ferment it in the M4 and then after two or three weeks, whenever it's finished fermenting, I'll take it out and press it and then put it back in the M4 and just cover it up, fill it up to the top and let them age. And it is a totally different feeling. It, it's as if 
then you really get to feel what's happening with terracotta versus wood because you'll have one barrel of Merlot in a barrel and then I'll do the rest all in amphora just to see what it looks like. And the stuff that's aging in amphora is, it has a purity and a, and a tension and a brightness to it that you don't see in the, in the one done in wood. Now, whether you could argue that you could get that same tension if you did it in steel, I don't know. I haven't done that yet. That would be interesting sort of across. But I think that there's a warmth and a feeling that you get from the clay. Uh, not so much a flavor, but there's definitely a, a texture that comes from that that just feel quite soft and um, and really quite uh, keeps the acidity in the, in the Merlot really interesting and really fresh. That's the biggest difference. I mean, the things on skins, I think the skin contact really sort of dominates the wine and the end result. What you're seeing in the glass is predominantly going to be the flavors that you get from that longer time on skins. So the Nirodavala we do is five months. That seems like a long time. It's winter. So it's as soon as things cool off. Yeah. And there's no reason to do anything to the wines until September when things start to warm up again in the winery. At that stage, I just sort of get everything out of the amphoras and put them into their next part of their life journey, you know, which is literally out of the amphoras, which are very vulnerable. There's a, a veil that builds on the top of them. Uh, or a ceiling, as we call it. So we want to sort of get that out of that situation and then kind of into somewhere at that stage where I'm starting to think about bottling because it's, it is sort of a white knuckle experience having wines that are that sort of vulnerable for that long. And it's only with a few years now of watching it and, and sort of trusting the process that the wines sort of find their own equilibrium that I'm more comfortable with it. But as things get warmer in the winery too, you know, obviously there's more bacterial and microbial things happening. So not using sulfur or much sulfur at all, it's really important for me at that stage to kind of take things out and sort of press and, and put the next wine into the next phase, which is really take all the skins out and press them and then take all the free run off the top and then recombine the pressings with the free run. And then those will settle out for maybe two or three months because it's quite cloudy at that time. There's a lot of gross leaves and things in there. And then everything will settle to the bottom to a certain extent. And then we'll rack it and go right to bottle. That's interesting because it's extended skin contact. And then it's also a lot of pressed wine, but it doesn't seem so austere or tannic when you taste the wine. Looking at someone, I was reading something from Eric Tessier about... Uh, Texier, Tessier? The Texier, I think, I believe. Yeah, and he was thinking about infusion rather than extraction. And I think that's something that we learned with the Nirodavala too, is that it's not, it's hand pressed. So you're not even looking for massive extraction. And then it just sits with the wine inert, almost like a cup of tea with tea leaves at the bottom of it. And then it's pressed maybe three quarters bar. So we're not even pressing it, the skins that hard. At that stage, the skins are, are very loose and very almost like tissue paper. And so you're getting a quite a gentle result. You're getting the tannin and the structure from the skins and the seeds that are getting pressed. But yeah, the wine itself isn't austere and there's no acid added. So you're just working with, you know, the natural acidity of the wine, which is fortunately high. So it kind of stays alive. And I think the acidity really helps that wine stay alive and feel really fresh. What about stems? No stems in that wine. I don't, uh, again, it was already so, so extreme at that stage. Anything longer than a couple of weeks, I really don't want the stems to stay with my wines. And the only wine that we really do that with is our Shiraz. Because I like that. I like a little bit of that savoriness to counterpoint some of the fruitiness you get in Shiraz. But with the Nero and those wines, yeah, I feel like there's already enough enough happening with the skins and seeds. Because it's already, you know, I want to see some fruit in that wine still. I still want to feel my vineyard's footprint. And I feel like a lot of times with wines that a whole bunch you lose, I can't even tell where it's from anymore. I know that there's a lot of whole bunch in there, but it's starting to taste more like asparagus maybe or getting those real black tea. Different aromatics that I feel like you're losing. I'm losing a sense of where it's from. So nothing in those long skin contact wines. I feel like there's enough in there already. Like I don't want the stem sitting in there too long at all. That's interesting because I feel like a lot of the new wave Australia guys that we think of like going against the model are using a lot of stems. Yeah, I think you're right. There are. I mean, you never know exactly what people are doing, but I know that, yeah, that's a real talking point. With my palate and what I like to drink, there are certain things that I prefer to do instead. And one of them is longer macerations and not necessarily getting the stems in there. I'd rather just see the wines in those stages be really pretty and really aromatic and really fruit driven, but also, you know, have some longer oxygen exposure. So they're developing some different characteristics uh, and then using the skins almost to the point where it is creating more tannin and more savoriness just from the skin contact. So we'll do like normal wines like Grenache Mataro, for example, which will spend maybe five weeks on skins and, and the whole ferment basically, or the Cabernet Franc that I do, that will wait until the skins start to sink. 
after the ferment's finished. And as soon as the skin starts to go down, right, then you need to really take action because the the wine's exposed. But I'm not in a real hurry to do that until that happens because I really want to get that flavor out of those skins without it being skinsy and without extracting it and without punching it down, you know, to an inch of its life. But I like that. And having your own winery too, you can take the time. You don't feel like you're being pressed or pushed from behind to kind of move in the next thing. We can kind of delegate space and take our time with a lot of those wines. So I'm not a huge fan of whole cluster stuff. Uh, I I do like a little bit in Shiraz. I don't see its point in Cabernet because you already have that herbal edge to it. But but that being said, you know, I, I do find some of the wines pretty fascinating. What's interesting to me when I talk to some of the new wave Australia guys, and I kind of consider you one, although we just talked about one way that you're different than many, is that a lot of times it seems to come out of old wave Australia guys. Like, you know, a guy for a really kind of hip and new new wave Australian winery will have worked as the assistant winemaker at something that's like paradigmatically of the older generation. Or, you know, for you, I feel like you hung with Grateful Palate and with Ringland, and then you went out and did your thing. So it's it's interesting to me how like there is an outgrowth of old Australia into a different viewpoint. Yeah, I think you're right. There's always going to be that sort of let's uh, do something different than our parents, I guess. There's, uh, I, you know, when I was with Chris Ringland or whatever, I wasn't involved in the winemaking. You know, I was watching and tasting and trying to absorb as much as I could. But I think a lot of the other certified winemakers would have started maybe with a bigger house and a bigger company and then making wine either by numbers more or more in a, in a laboratory as well. You're looking at very strict sort of, you know, this is the pH should be here, the TA should be here, or we have a problem, we need to make some additions, we got to get this thing under control, or however they would make the wines. I never had that background, so I really went into it like cooking dinner. I was like, these are the grapes, okay, I like the way they taste, you know, now let's let's do a wild ferment, because I don't want to even get involved with commercial yeast at this stage, and it looks like they can ferment on their own quite well, and I mean, it sounds quite innocent, but really, it was that sort of moment of like, well, let's do this with this Nero Davolo. And that was the first wine that said, well, the wine can kind of take care of itself. Like it's got the yeast it needs to move through. It's got this, you know, it's got good acid. If we pick it at the right time, we'll put it right on that trail where it needs to be. And that's kind of why I'm a little bit different is that I don't have that, you know, here's the numbers and let's crush them. And this is what it should look like. And it's more sort of intuitive and by taste. Um, but I ask a lot of questions. I mean, I still have good friends that are that are talented and trained winemakers and say, oh my God, I'm, am I in a dark spot here? Is this going to work its way out? Or what do we, you know, and the way forward for me is just to really simplify it, keep it really simple, try to keep it as pure as possible. And being probably undertrained in some ways uh, really sort of benefits me because I'm not really, I'm not really looking at, you know, installing fancy cooling devices and things. I really like seeing things working at a, in a sort of primitive sort of sense, you know, and seeing if we can get through this process without having to really intervene that much, even if it's changing temperatures and so on. If I can get to something at the end in the glass that I enjoy, knowing that I had to make a couple of decisions, but I really didn't have to alter that wine that much from the moment I picked it. That's ultimately one of the most satisfying things about making wine, really, is seeing that transformation, but also knowing that in the glass is something as genuine as you could possibly get to where it came from. So what's the Nero Davila doing in bottle? Like, is there a transformation there? What's the aging curve like? Yeah, it's interesting. Now we've made four vintages of it, and we've seen that initial criticism on the wine was it, was, it was always very positive, but the question mark was whether it would last. And I didn't know, except I, I knew that it always had naturally high acid, and I knew that it didn't have a lot of oak tannin, but the tannin was there. It had structure. And uh, we've seen that first wine, which was the cool vintage 2011, it's aged remarkably, and it's lost a lot of that sort of real exuberance that the wine has now, that real sort of almost schizophrenic personality of, wow, it's this way, it's ginger in that way. And it's more mainline now and streamed down into almost like into Nebbiolo territory, which is really fun. It's got those tar and roses. It's really pretty. And I've seen that with the wines now as they age, they do, they kind of focus and become much more quieter and finely etched. You know, they have this real sort of some quality to them, which is really pretty, you know, and that's, for us, that's about picking them where they're where they are lighter and they might not be like Burgundian light, but they're hopefully going to, you know, develop into that four or five year plan. And so the ageability looks really promising. You know, I think they're wines that, that are going to last for a long time. We've seen now the whole sort of reversal of the critics saying that these are wines that are very quite tannic and they'll last to be, you know, 2050 or something like that, which, you know, I really don't want my wines to outlast me. But, you know, I think that that sort of way of making the wine, it's a really sort of interesting way of, of ageability. 
providing that tannin through skins and through seeds. And you also make a zabibo, which is kind of interesting, a little different technique. Yeah, it was an interesting way of exploring Muscat of Alexandria, which is a grape variety that's in the Riverland where we get the fruits called Muscat Gordo Blanco, which is even less sexy. <laughs> Gordo Blanco, that's yeah. pretty awesome. I know, so Gordo, the fat one, right, or fat boy. And it's it has other synonyms to it, but we wanted to sort of focus on the sort of way it's treated in Pantelleria off the coast of Sicily, which is more, you know, some of the more kind of wacky M4 production that they do over there and more exposure to oxygen and and so forth. And and also just to, to push something like that to the limit where we can have a, a variety that's normally quite sweet and aromatic, but vinified dry. So it's a little bit kind of an Alice in Wonderland wine where it smells sweet, but on the palate, it's dry and, and a little bit kind of sherry-like and, and really sort of versatile with food and really kind of a real sort of, yeah, adventure, you know, where it's like, wow, that's really cool. It sort of goes this way and then it goes that way and then it goes that way. And that was also just an experiment as well to see how that variety, Zabibo, would affect if you leave it to its own devices without interfering for all of winter, which is the same way we do with the Nero, does it resolve itself? What happens at the end of that sort of dark period during winter, once we reactivate the wine and take it out of the amphora, what are we left with? Is it actually a completed wine? You know, has it finished its, what it has to say? And, and that's something else that's really interesting is just to really step back. And it was a variety that I thought would be fun to try with just because a lot of it goes into less sort of fancy bottlings like Moscato's into, you know, obviously into sparkling wine and, and into all sorts of different box wines and even like things like that. So I was like, well, you know, maybe we can at least try to do something kind of fun with it and see if we can make something refreshing and certainly different on my little spectrum of wines too. It's nice to have something like that, which is really sort of delicious, but um, alien at the same time. Brad Hickey has gone in several different ways, found dark times and alien moments, and in the end, when he stepped back, found that he was a winemaker in Australia. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Levy. Brad Hickey of Brash Higgins Wines in the McLaren Vale. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.